Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 306. I nodded and the two of us came to our feet and gathered up our things. Expressionless, Master Lauren reached out a long hand toward me. I handed Gebea's journal over without comment and a minute later we were blinking in the chill winter sunlight outside the archives doors. I pulled my cloak around me and stomped the snow off my feet. Suspended, Simmons said. That was clever. I shrugged, more embarrassed than I cared to admit. I hoped one of the other students would explain I was actually trying to keep things quiet rather than the other way around. I was just trying to do the right thing. Simmons laughed as we began to walk slowly in the direction of anchors. He kicked playfully at a small drift of snow. The world needs people like you, Simmons said, in the tone of voice that let me know he was turning philosophical. You get things done. Not always the best way, or the most sensible way, but it gets done nonetheless. You're a rare creature. How do you mean? I asked, my curiosity piqued. Sim shrugged. Like today. Something bothers you. Someone offends you. And suddenly you're off. He made a quick motion with a flat hand. You know exactly what to do. You never hesitate. You just see and react. He was thoughtful for a moment. I imagine that's the way the emir used to be. Small wonder folk were frightened of them. I'm not always so terribly sure of myself, I admitted. Simmons smiled. I find that strangely reassuring. And that's the page and the chapter. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I feel that this chapter, this page, is the literary equivalent of Rothfuss taking a little mallet and whacking us over the head with the idea that Quoth is behaving like an emir, people. If you haven't figured it out by now, here is Simon telling us all but explicitly, Quoth has the same attitude as an emir. This is a necessary mallet. Yeah, well, it's funny. I was talking about this with my partner who is also a writer and who was working on a story that she had me beta read. And uh, one of the notes that I gave her was like, the ending here is like, I kind of think I know what you're getting at, but I'm not sure. And I think you could make it a little bit more explicit what you're getting at. And she said, oh my God, when I was writing this, I was so sure that I was being really, really, really unsubtle. And I thought you were going to tell me to like pare it back because I was hitting the reader over the head. And I said, no, you're not. You should hit me over the head more. And I think that that is, it, like, it's a tough balance to strike. And I agree with Jordana. Like, that's not a thing that I picked up on the first, you know, few times I read this book. And now I can see, yes, okay, that is a comparison that's being made here. But furthermore, if I may jump off, uh, one of the things I really like about this page is that there's no value judgment attached to the character trait of Quoth, like, making up his mind and then acting, like, being decisive. Simon doesn't say whether that's a good or a bad thing. And that's because it's not a good or a bad thing because it depends on the context, right? In the context of seeing an injustice and acting to right that injustice, like that's good. You should do that. But in the context of thinking about like thinking through the consequences of an action and the unforeseen ramifications it might have, that could lead to bad outcomes. Yes, I also appreciate that there's no intrinsic judgment attached to this. Jeremy, no, like, I know you are a skilled writer and you are certainly 
your input is valuable as a beta reader, but you are famously not the closest reader. You are not perhaps the most, shall we say, keyed into subtext when it comes to a book. I mean, so maybe pass that book on to other beta readers for more feedback before your partner makes it uh, a too much, too obvious. My partner gave it to someone else who gave them the same feedback. I think, if I okay, may, okay. I can see subtext when it's in something. And if I don't see it, then it's not there. If I don't see it, you have to work harder to put it in so I see it. I also think that this mallet feels particularly obvious to us because we're close reading. But I think if you're just reading this book, you need this. Like you need it to be spelled out for you just a little bit here. Because it's not even spelled out. It is suggested and you can put those pieces together. I think that it's something that all storytellers struggle with, which is how much, how obvious to make your subtext. And the answer is, there's no right, really right answer because people read things differently and interpret things differently. And I always value a, a storyteller who trusts me to be able to put two and two together and pick up what they're putting down. But if the creator doesn't make it easy for me to pick up those pieces and put them together, doesn't make it clear through their subtext what they're trying to say, then they haven't said it well. You shouldn't have to like really like study something or read an explainer to understand what an artist is trying to get at. And if you do, then that artist has, in my opinion, failed. I agree in general, but I think about this a lot because adjacent to my industry is the design of altered reality games, which you may recognize as things that are like puzzles or narratives that are meant to be unraveled by a big community doing these kind of deep dives. And that kind of analysis is part of what I found interesting about this book. And that's kind of what's happening in the community around it, where they're banding together and treating it in a way like an ARG in order to solve the puzzles ahead of time. And I think about this a lot because when you're designing an ARG, you have to strike an incredibly difficult balance of actually hiding intentional narrative subtext as deeply as possible, but not so deep that it is too obtuse for people to find, but not so shallow that they'll come across it immediately because there's nothing the community hates more than an obvious ARG. And when you have hundreds of people, sometimes thousands, putting their heads together and crunching your puzzles, they're going to blast through it really easily. But if you do it badly, then you end up with what Overwatch did with the Sombra ARG, where there was actually no narrative and people were just spinning off on bizarre tangents. Jeremy, if you want to read about a community that went mad trying to uncover the subtext, you should read about the Sombra ARG because they were like, they like discovered graphical errors in some of the leaked images and they decided that they were codes and they ran them through computer simulators and they got like bad data that implied it was a code. So they started cracking that and eventually uh, Blizzard had to step in and say, no, no, there's no code here. Like you went the wrong direction and they had to explicitly point them back. Anyway, I think about that a lot because obviously like- So what I, you're saying is they were looking for subtext where there was no subtext. Nick, you totally yes, just dug yourself into a hole here. I think that's their fault. Yes, that is their fault. But I'm saying that sometimes it is your design as an artist to attach subtext that is meant to be dug out. When that is your job, it's an incredibly difficult task you're doing. So I wonder to what extent, I'm not saying Rothfuss did this, but I do think that Rothfuss in a way more so than many authors perhaps because he had the trilogy written before he went back to publish the first and second book. Rothfuss knows where things are going and he knows where his puzzles are leading. So I'm not saying he's intending for us to parse them out in the way that an ARG community might, but I do think that there's a bit more design done 
and I think he has had to do a bit of work to not be too obvious, but still lead the clues there so that it seems fun when, when they are revealed. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe what we're talking about here is like writing for different kinds of audiences because I'm not interested in trying to solve the various mysteries or puzzles in this book or in Game of Thrones, for example, before they happen. I'm I'm along for the ride. And what keeps me invested in this book is the interesting characters, the the setting, the relationships, the things Rothfuss is doing with genre, the things he's doing with prose. The sort of like mystery box elements aren't that interesting to me. And I know they're really interesting to you. And you spend a lot of time trying to like figure out what he's getting at. And I don't, I don't care. But the genius of this book is that both audiences are satisfied. And that to me is an in, an incredibly difficult thing to be able to do, to be able to have that like that depth, that sort of puzzle box quality for people to agonize over while also just telling a super entertaining character driven story. I was just if we can merge back to the page we're reading. Speaking of the puzzle box, I think that Lauren conjured, I think I talked about this yesterday, Lauren uh, con- con- concocted this interjection so he could confiscate the book i don't think anyone is going to find that book again i i don't know if that's necessarily true i think that that is up for debate but the thing i wanted to talk about on this page was simmons reaction to quote like sort of simmons philosophical musings <laughs> about quote Go well on. so he's saying that like almost like he's admi- he's admiring quotes ability to do this thing that I don't think it's sort of almost like contrary to Simmons personality for him to, to like step out in that way that Quoth does. And so when he says like the world needs people like you, he, he's saying it in an, an endearing way, but at the same time, almost like he's recognizing that like, this is a quality in Quoth that he as an individual finds to be a positive one. He's also recognizing that it is, it, it can instill fear and that it like it definitely can go wrong because when quotes like no like i i'm not always sure of myself and he's like reassured by that because if quoth was always sure re- like sure of himself chances are he'd be very wrong people who are always sure that they're doing the right thing tend to be fanatics yeah they're almost certainly not doing the right thing all the time <laughs> they're probably doing the right thing as they see it but because they're not questioning their assumptions we might take issue with what they think the right thing is and that's why simon is reassured by him not being so terribly sure of himself all the time i think that also tells us about quoth and sim's relationship to each other because quoth does come off as like supremely confident always you know, having a plan, always knowing what he's doing. And he confesses to Sim in this moment that like, no, I'm not. But, but Quoth does have that trait of like, not, he's not willing to take shit from people. Right. And he's not willing to let other people take shit from people if he can stop it. Yeah. He has to act. This is relatable to me. I think I and many have had this same kind of conversation with people where they have a trait that I admire that I don't have in myself or that I'd be too afraid to apply. This kind of, maybe not necessarily the same kind of obstinacy as Quoth, but certainly, you know, people who are willing to do the right thing to their own detriment at times. Uh, I admire that even if it's not something I possess. I also think Quoth's reaction is is telling in a way that it's, it is making Quoth more relatable to most people because the way that Quoth reacts is not like, hey, thanks for that compliment, really appreciate it. It's, it's like, oh no, no, I'm not actually that great. 
right? Which is how a lot of people react when you give them a compliment. People are not great at taking compliments. Like as I feel like as a society, we're not great at that. Well, especially people with low self-esteem tend to and not like, be good at taking compliments. This isn't even a compliment. This is just Sim identifying a character trait, which as I said before, he doesn't attach a value to. And quote, But it does seem positive. Well, yeah, but what I'm getting at is that it's not Quoth not being able to take a compliment. It's Quoth not recognizing in himself that he has that trait, which is, I think, quite relatable. Like when someone says, you know, oh, I really admire this about you and you not recognizing that that's a trait you have because it's like just something that you do without thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Yes, feels very relatable. That's kind of all I've got on this page. Mm -hmm. I have only one more note. Lay it on us. Well, the final note for this page and this chapter is that it is the end of a chapter, and this chapter was called The Greater Good, obviously referring to the fantastic movie uh, Hot Fuzz, in in which the people in the cloaks go the greater good. Also referring to the local bar and pizzeria where you can get uh, the best pizza in the city. Sadly, closed or at least uh, no longer accessible because of COVID. But also you can referring order that to the pizza. lyrics in an Iron Maiden song. Obviously, what it actually refers to is the motto of the Emir uh, and uh, their attitude that, you know, the Emir are very much an ends justify the means kind of uh, organization. And that seems to be their philosophy. They'll do terrible things. And also well, quotes philosophy. it's starting to get that way. <laughs> you know, it's okay to admit that I'm right occasionally. And when that day comes, I'll admit it, Nick. <laughs> we have a letter from... Patrick, who is actually sitting in listening to us record right now on our live Twitch stream. And you, the listener, should also join us on our weekly live stream. We record on Sundays uh, between 1 and 4 Eastern time uh, is our start time. It flexes based on where we're at, but we'll we'll post on Twitter. Keep an eye there. You should join us. There's some good chats, good hangs. You get to see our pretty faces. And here's the letter from Patrick Notrothfuss, who writes on page 283. Hello, pagers. On this page, page, on this page, we meet the Edamara and Quoth's story, and you three discuss the possibility that either Quoth's troop was an outlier among Edamara and behaved better than most, or that they hid their thievery from Quoth because he was a child. I do not think this is the case, and there is some evidence in the text to support me. First off, I think we can agree that even though Quoth was young when his troop was killed, he was old and clever enough to see things that he knew were wrong. There are a few people who treat Quoth better when they know he is Edamara. There is Viari, Lawrence Giller, who is a book hunter. He first mistakes Quoth for Gillish, but then recognizes him as one of the Ra and greets him with a friendly one family, which may indicate that he is also a member of the Ra, or at least traveled with a troop for a while. I think the biggest piece of evidence that the Edema Ra are not the thieving people others say is that the Tinkers treat them well. The Tinkers are universally respected and seem to hold the Ra in high regard. When Quoth identifies himself as Edema Ra to the Tinker outside of Trebin, the Tinker relaxes and trusts him more. One other thing you mentioned is the perception that Natalia Lackless was stolen by a Ra troop. While this may be what the Lackless family wants people to believe, it seems that the rumor mongers of Severin have the idea that she ran away and was not stolen. Quoth gets this from the pile of rumors that were dropped off at his door. Quote, I read that young Natalia Lackless had run away with a troop of traveling performers. Her parents had disowned her, of course, leaving Meloen the only heir to the Lackless lands. There was another brief reference to the Lackless heir forsaking their family duty in the book Quoth Gets from Codicus on the Lackless family. The public perception seems to be that Natalia ran away rather than being stolen. 
Thank you for keeping up the podcast. It is always a nice break from the day. Signed, Patrick. Patrick, thank Roberts. you so much for writing. I think that you're right. I think that Quoth's Troop is good and nice. But I do want to point out, I'm going to play devil's advocate for myself here. You say that Quoth, as a child, was already like too clever to be fooled into thinking that, you know, his family was something they weren't. Yeah, but part of this book seems to be telling us over and over again that Quoth sees what he wants to see, and he doesn't necessarily always see what's actually going on in front of him. As regards the Tinkers, while I'll grant you that the Rose seem to respect Tinkers, do we know that it that everybody believes that it's bad luck to cross them, or is that a a Ru belief? I expect that the people who are travelers who are who are more likely to encounter Tinkers more often have more respect for them. Uh, I think Patrick's evidence is pretty compelling that Viari, who is a certainly a well-traveled person, immediately defaults to respect and following the traditions. That that means a lot, as well as the fact that the Tinkers encounter them. So I'm certainly not arguing that the bigotry against the Ra is justified. But I think where this really gets interesting is that when we encounter the false Ra troop, I've been reading it closely ever since we learned the rules in this chapter, because I'm really interested in that section and the fact is they do everything right quoth poisons them before he encounters the girls that they've stolen and up until then they have actually followed all of the traditions properly so quoth is really just acting on a hunch before he realizes that they're like literally kidnappers and and rapists until that point until we get that proof there is actually no indication that they're anything but, and even to Quoth, besides the fact that he just smells a rat and is following his hunch, there's no indication that they are actually like false and bad people. It does turn out that they're a troop of bandits who killed the Ra, or no, who encountered, who found the Ra wagons. I don't remember exactly what it is, but they, they're they not Ra, they replaced the Ra, or they travel with them for a while and then learn their ways and then replace them. So like, they're not true Ra, but functionally they are because they do everything right. Uh, I've got some Wait, stuff coming in on the chat. I, I just and... before the chat. I just want to say that that is an interesting case of seeming without being. Ooh, Jeremy, that's uncharacteristically crack. I can potted. crack a pot as well oh, yeah. as any man. Jordana, what what's the chat saying? All right, I I tend to agree with the chat, so I'm I'm happy to read it because I also feel like just on the topic of we were talking about like Jeremy, you were being devil's advocate, and I think while. I am entertained by the idea of the Ruh maybe like secretly actually being bad guys. I don't think Rothfuss would write a book like that. And SNC agrees with me. So I'm just going to read what I, <laughs> I'm just going to read what SNC wrote. <laughs> I don't either. I think the Quotes family are good and nice and the Ruh are generally good and nice. Me too. I just also, I, sorry, Jenna, I, I, well, I'll let you get to this, but I do want to point out that but the very nature of the Ruh means that they're all in isolated pockets and it makes sense that they might, each troop might have very different attitudes toward what it means to be Ra. So even though the troop we encountered ends up being literally false Ra, it's not outside the realm of possibility that there are actual Ra by conviction people out there who do not have the same ethical basis as Quoth's family or the people that uh, Viari and the Tinkers have encountered. But uh, I, I do think it's worthwhile to open up the floor here. All right, SNC writes, given Rothfuss's uh, in real life politics, I doubt he would write a story where bigotry is justified because they really are that bad. Which I feel like is like, yeah, like, yep, yeah. yep, that. Uh, also, there is there is some disagreement in the chat as to whether or not the troop 
that Quoth encounters does actually do everything right. And I, what I would posit there is because I I also sort of remember them not doing everything right and like Quoth gets a couple of hints, but what I would posit is that we hold on to those thoughts and we bring it back up when we actually read that part of the book because like speculating right now is not going to be very productive. A couple of the things they say, like we nicked it here, like they talk about stealing stuff very casually and that's the kind of stuff that clues Quoth in, but that is not stuff that necessarily precludes them from being rubbed by conviction. That's just a difference in what is ethical, right? Like I, I'm still like, th- you're right, listeners writing in the chat that they give themselves away as not having the same ethical standards as Quoth's family, but that doesn't preclude them literally being Ra, who are just from a different bubble. It could just be bad, but hashtag not all Adam a Ra. Yes. There's more in the chat. Uh, Patrick Not Rothfuss brings up the broken circle, which is something that Quoth talks about after he kills them all or he brands them as being not Ra. I still think that Quoth was taught all this stuff by his family, presumably, and there's no indication that he encountered others. So he has an idea of what the Ra are, but that idea doesn't necessarily mean it's reflected among all Ra. And not to turn this into a Star Wars podcast, but this same idea is now being front and center in this season of The Mandalorian, because the Mando, our, our hero Mando, is raised in, it turns out, spoiler alert, is actually part of like a weird splinter cult of the Mandalorians and Mandalorians at large are just sort of like warrior mercenaries who have no problem with all the, the credo stuff. They have like a code of honor, but they are also like taking their helmets off and stuff. Yeah. And like, yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, I don't think it's quite the same thing. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of pushback in the chat. So I, I, this has already been an extremely long episode. So rather than turn this into a, a dialogue, a platonic dialogue, why don't we kick it down the road and we can have a deeper dive when we get to that part of the book. All right. Well then, uh, listeners, you can scream at us into the void on tomorrow's page. Uh, The...